Dear Heavenly Father, Father, the world is filled with those who do not know you. We were once one of them. And the world, Father, is turning and moving and approaching the end that you appointed for it. And time is counting down, not counting up. And our opportunities to serve you are fleeting, even if for only the reason that our natural life will come to an end one day. And all of these things tell us the obvious that we often overlook, that what we know now in this world is not real. It's not the permanent world that we'll one day know. It's passing, soon to be burned up, Peter says. And in, in its place, Father, is the real kingdom, the one that we will live in eternally with you, the one we long for, the one the ancestors of all who we read about in the Bible longed for. And as much as we are absorbed in our everyday life, Father, you are good to bring us back to your word on a regular basis and to remind us of these things and to cons- give us reason to consider our future and to ask important questions. And I ask, Father, that as we study the life of a p- people from many centuries ago and their experiences, we would take every opportunity by your spirit to apply what we're learning and to consider in our own lives the very same pattern that you're showing us in the lives of these people in Israel and that we'd be receptive to that learning, Father. We'd have an open heart and we'd be considering how we may change what we do to please you better and be taking the lessons and making the most of them. For the time is short and our test approaches and we dearly want, Father, to please you. We ask these things as we remember our brothers and sisters in the room and their needs, especially Margie, Father, as we think of how hard it is when we're searching for work. But we know, Father, you provide, and you'll do it in a a million ways. But we ask, Father, that, that one of those ways would be the chance for Margie to put her hand to the plow and to work in a in a field and in a place where she can use her talents, and that you would reward her with with that opportunity soon. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week when we studied the first two chapters of this book in Ezra, we were looking at the history that brought Israel into captivity at the hands of the Gentile nation Babylon. We spent a bit of time reviewing that history outside the book of Ezra, particularly as it's captured in Chronicles of how the Lord was disciplining the southern kingdom for their sins. And remember, we distinguish discipline from judgment. Discipline is the response God merited out for the southern tribe, but judgment is what he gave to the northern tribe for their disobedience, the difference being that God had a plan to restore the southern kingdom, whereas the northern kingdom did not. And we also saw the lengths to which God was willing to go patiently and waiting for them to repent, but they didn't. It says that though the prophets came time and time again, there was a point at which there was no longer a remedy, we heard. And finally, God began to act in a very deliberate way to teach the nation a lesson and to ensure that one day they would return to him in obedience. And when that time came to act, he removed them from their land through the instrument of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And if you remember, we said that there were three steps to the way God brought that judgment upon Israel. There were three attacks specifically. First, Nebuchadnezzar came in 605 B.C. and he took the king, he took all the noblemen, he took the high class, the educated class of Israel away from them. Men like Daniel who left with that group, men from the highest levels of Jewish society. And in their place, Nebuchadnezzar installed vassals who would do his bidding. And then he returned. That didn't stop their rebellion. So in another visit, Nebuchadnezzar removes All the artisans, the teachers, the scribes, those who instructed the people of Israel, leaving only the poorest in the nation remaining in that city. And then they don't learn their lesson. They rebel one more time. And Nebuchadnezzar comes back a third time and he utterly destroys everything in the city. He removes the walls. He destroys the temple, reducing the city to its foundations. And in that last step, it results in the loss of any opportunity for Israel to worship the Lord in the way he prescribed, because without the temple, they can't perform a temple service. A very powerful lesson that sin separates us from a holy God. So God's discipline on the nation runs for 70 years until, as he promised, there would be a time of restoration. And as we proceed from here through the rest of the study of Ezra and into Nehemiah, 
we are going to continue to look for this pattern that I briefly mentioned last time, the pattern of threes in which the Lord carries out both the discipline and then ultimately now the restoration of Israel. The story of Israel's fall and Israel's rise in the sense of the restoration yields a pattern for how the Lord in general disciplines each of us individually. Though these things are remote and they happened long ago, they have a very immediate application for us because they teach a manner of how God deals with children who are disobedient, with all of us in other words. Just like with Israel, the Lord will often move through a series of steps, three steps of discipline followed by three steps of restoration, not as a rule and not in all cases, but as a general rule of thumb, it's very useful. You can see it play out in your own life if you look closely. He brings us his instruction through scripture, and we are called to grow by what we learn in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. But what if, like Israel, we ignore that as they fail to heed what was spoken in the prophets? What if we persist in our sin? Well, eventually, there will be no remedy for us either. And then discipline must begin. And the Lord may use anything to bring us discipline, obviously, but he will often follow the same pattern we're studying here. As we act out our own version of the prodigal son from time to time, as we rebel and as we walk away from the Lord, if all else fails, if God is unable to get our attention through his word and if he's unable to, to get our attention through instruction, what he'll begin to do is eliminate those things in our life, those influences in our life that are bringing us to the place where we shouldn't be, like corrupt leaders, like false teachers, or like the idols of our life that carry us away from the Lord. And when there's no more remedy beyond that, he'll tear down the fortresses in our lives, the walls in our lives, the barriers that we erect for ourselves against poverty or against disappointment, the transparency that we lack some kind of prideful self-image, our economic vitality, our busy and self-important lives. He'll break us so that he can rebuild us in his image. And we're going to continue to relate God's pattern of discipline and restoration in Israel to the way that he will act in disciplining us individually. We're going to see a pattern similar to this, and it's helpful now to understand it because when I recognize the elements of it, it causes me to snap out of my little selfish routine, and I realize I see God's hand. And I'd rather it be noticed earlier than later. Now, that doesn't mean every time we suffer these sorts of things, it's an evidence of being disciplined necessarily. But when we are due for discipline, we'll see this pattern. We'll see God beginning to bring our own sin back upon us for the purpose of discipline. And just as that destruction process will go through a series of stages, often these three steps, so often does the restoration process. God will bring us those steps back in reverse order often. So the order that he took them from Israel was leaders and influencers, teachers and scribes, and then the economic or material idols of their life that had been holding them, or apparently they thought holding them. And then he'll bring in to bring those things back into our life. He'll bring a new leadership into our life. He'll bring new teaching into our life. And then at the end of it, he'll restore us in vitality. And that's what he's doing with Israel in these three steps. At the end of it, though, there's a picture of Christ in that he wants true worship. He wants us to have a true king. He wants us to have a true prophet. He wants us to have worship through a true priest rather than in the ways we substitute in each case. So in the first two chapters, we witnessed the Lord opening the door for that restoration process in Israel. So outside the book of Ezra, you have the destruction process, which we've summarized. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have the restoration process. So through Cyrus, we heard last week that the Lord decreed Israel was to return and rebuild their temple. Interestingly, as we noted last week, the decree doesn't assign anyone specifically the task of going, much less of leading. He says anyone can go if they so choose, if their hearts are stirred. This is a free invitation. The decree only seeks that men and women go for the purpose of reestablishing the temple. God's work of restoration must begin with a heart that desires to hear and to follow the Lord. No one is forced into repentance. No one is forced into a return. No one picked the prodigal son up out of the mud, kicked him in the rear, and told him to go home. It doesn't work that way. The Lord himself stirs the hearts that repent, right? The repentance that is from the Lord is the one that leads us back to him. So when the Lord begins to restore his people from this time of discipline, he opens a door, he doesn't shove them through it. And he's looking for faithful followers ready to follow him. When the time came for them to leave Jerusalem and when the work began, 
you also notice, as I said, there was no obvious leader. So the Lord isn't rushing people into the position of leadership at this point. He's not interested in working through men in the sense of a leader. His first priority is to establish faithful men and women who are going to follow him long before they ever think of following a man. So that their idea, their thought of what they're doing is following God and they're focused on it. So that's chapter 1 and 2 and everything that led up to 1 and 2. Let's go now to chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Now, when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then... Yeshua, the son of Josadak, and his brothers, the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. Well, let's just set up the scene that's happening here in chapter 3. We don't know how long they've been living in the land at this point. It may be easy to assume that they've been there seven months, but that's not what the text says. It says in the seventh month of the year, that is the month of Tishri, then the sons of Israel all gather in Jerusalem. They've spent some period in the land already, we know that, and they've used that time to set up their own livelihood, to put something together where they could live in a city or in a home or in a tent. But now the time has come to turn their attention to the temple, to the building of the temple, which is why they went there. This is one of the most important months in the Jewish calendar. In this month, you have three of the annual feasts all in the same month. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths all happen in this month. The Feast of Trumpets occurs on the first day of the month, and it marks the beginning of the Jewish New Year. That's the day they choose to meet at this place. And the worshipers had only the barest of implements with which to conduct this service. They build an altar, which we have to assume they've done from uncut stones, as the law would require, and they proceed to perform ritual sacrifice on that altar from this point forward in a daily way. Now, the gathering, we're told, is led by Jeshua and his brothers and Zerubbabel and his brothers, taking a position of leading this convocation. But do you notice that although the men are mentioned prominently, nevertheless, we're still talking about a group here. There's no clear individual leader. And in fact, the order of these names will often be moved around whenever they're mentioned as different at different times in the text, emphasizing the fact that there really isn't one person that you can point to right now that's leading Israel. And then even as they work, we're told they're terrified. They're terrified by the peoples of the land. The group we know is small, relatively speaking. It's leaderless. It's empty handed. It doesn't have probably much in the way of defense. It has no wall. It has no natural defenses. It's in fear because they've encroached on other people's territory, it would appear. And as God has brought them in this weak and vulnerable state into a place that's intended for worship, and now they're worshiping in this crude and, and very minimalistic way, it's completely stripped of anything that it might offer support. The trappings of worship are gone. The only things present in this moment are the people, a rough stone altar, the sky above them, and the sacrifice they make, and God himself. And that's exactly what God wanted. Here you see worship stripped clean of all the things that might be mistaken for worship. They've been brought back, as the song says, to the heart of worship in this moment. They are at the place God appointed. They have come to sacrifice as God instructed. And they are without all the trappings of religious practice that men so often come to mistake for true worship. They only have a heart to approach him to bless his name, and to do what he told them to do. And they are vulnerable in a way that reminds them that they are completely dependent on God, which is what worship is supposed to emphasize in our hearts, our dependence on God. And in these circumstances, their dependence is utterly clear to them and to everyone else. In their case, this reboot of how to worship is especially important, not just for the obvious reasons of what transpired in Israel prior to the time that they were taken in captivity, but also because of what's happened while they've been in captivity. The people of Judah, while they were in Babylon, invented Judaism. Judaism is a term that describes the system of Jewish tradition and worship that is commonly associated today with all Jews. Judaism was invented in Babylon. Without a temple, without a priesthood, the people of Judah instituted new traditions and practices of worship so that they could do something while they were left in this land away from their temple. 
They invented what we today think of as Jewish practice. Rituals in the place of what is prescribed in Scripture. I'm not saying all that Jews do is tradition. We obviously know the Passover is prescribed and the like. But even within what we see them doing in a Passover service, much of that is extra biblical. Not that it's all wrong, mind you, but the point is, where did all that come from? Most of it began, if not all of it, in the time that they spent in exile. That's why it's called Judaism today from the tribe of Judah. But among these exiles, these practices have come to be what worship was, as opposed to what they had been prescribed to do under the law given to Moses. And some of them are even contrary to the law and the requirements for worship at the temple. And so the Lord begins here to reset the people according to his purposes and his expectations. And we can see clearly in the text that I've already read, where are they going for this reboot, as I call it? It says they go to the Torah. They go to the book written by Moses, the man of God. They are seeking God through a careful observance and obedience to his word. And as they apply what they read, they begin to worship in the manner God prescribed, in the place he prescribed, at the time he prescribed. The entire scene is a beautiful example of worshiping in spirit and in truth, of presently their bodies becoming a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God and making it a spiritual service of worship. This is how all believers are to worship, according to Scripture, every day. Stripped of the meaningless and contrived ritual, recognizing our total dependence on God, focused on making ourselves a sacrifice for the glory of God, though, of course, today we need not make it with live animals. We do it through our life, knowing that the one and only sacrifice that's necessary has been made. Occasionally, though, I think, and I know this in my own experience, so I don't think I'm off the mark in saying this, I think God needs at times to bring us back to these kinds of basics so we understand that worship isn't about what's going on around us, it's about what's going on inside us. I remember I had a time here in San Antonio a few years ago when I left a larger church to start a church in my own home with a couple of other families, which was a very unnerving experience right from the start, and I wasn't even sure it was legal. I don't know what I was doing. I remember in the very earliest of those weeks when you're doing a worship service in your home with no one who knows how to play a musical instrument, by the way, so you're using an iPod. and You're stripped of all of the trappings of worship. It was easy in a big crowd to stand in the room and mouth the words and hold your hands up and stand and sit and do whatever they tell you to do and not have anything going on inside. When you're the one of only five people in the room, you can't pretend. There's no one to hide with. It's you and no one. You're either doing it or you're not doing it. And if you feel foolish, then you have to search inside and ask yourself, why am I feeling foolish? What is it that's in me that's not right right now? It's you and it's God. And it's a really humbling experience, but it's a very instructive one. If you never have a chance to do that, that's something worth doing. In that moment, you come to grips with what true worship looks like and feels like. And again, it's not a formula. It's not a certain emotional state. It's not a certain musical style. It's not even music at all, necessarily. Those things aren't wrong. They support the purpose of worship if they're done with a worshipful attitude. But the point is we often take the outer and without getting to the substance. We often have the the look without the, the substance. It's actually about sacrifice. And it's actually a daily, hourly thing, not a once a week thing. And where do we go to get our instructions on how to worship in this way? In God's word, just as they did. I already read Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And Paul echoes that again in Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So we've been placed by our faith in a relationship with the Lord for the purpose, according to Paul, that our lives might become a living testimony for his glory. Simply put, we've been saved to worship him. But worship is a continual thing. Your whole life is given over to him, and that's your spiritual service of worship. These people have been brought back to a place, and in a way, and in a certain set of circumstances, so that nothing they might have rested on in the place of true worship is available to them anymore. 
All they have is God and a heartfelt desire to worship him. And they begin to do it according to his word. Moving forward, they continue, it says, in their heart to praise the Lord. Verses three through six. They celebrated the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily, according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was a continual burnt offering also for the new moons and for all the fixed festivals of the Lord that were consecrated and from everyone who offered a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. If you were to read these three verses in contrast to some of what you read at the end of Kings or at the end of Chronicles, the thing that would strike you most quickly is the diligent obedience of this passage in contrast to the abject disobedience and continual idolatry of what you read at the end of Israel's days before the captivity. It's just a stark contrast. And that's another facet of true worship. True worship outside of obedience is no worship at all. You can't be worshiping the one you disobey. Their obedience, their adherence so closely and carefully to what they've been reading in the book that Moses wrote is evidence of this heart to obey and please the Lord. And at the middle of the month, the Feast of Booths begins. The 15th of Tishri is when they begin the Feast of Booths. That feast, it commemorates the tabernacling of Israel with the Lord in the desert following their removal from Egypt, which is kind of ironic when you think about it, because in the way it was traditionally observed, they would leave their homes and they would go and live in a tent for this period of time to commemorate the time when Israel was wandering and didn't have permanent homes. But in this case, this is probably all they have. Their tents are their homes. They're they're truly tabernacling during the Feast of Booths. They were truly reliving the events that are memorialized there. At that point going forward, we're told they persist in observing the law, as I've already said. Notice, though, in verse 6, it says the foundations of the temple had not yet been laid. This continuing act of worship itself is an act of faith in that respect. Because the faith that they're demonstrating here is the faith that the Lord is going to be pleased with their obedience in spite of the fact that without a temple, they're actually unable to do many of the things that the law commands them to do in the way that they're commanded to do it. I mean, they're doing these sacrifices, yes, but in the law, there's the expectation that there's a tabernacle around them while they're doing this or next to them and that there's certain things being done by the priests within the confines of the tabernacle, etc. They can't do that. And yet they're trying to do their best. They're demonstrating faith and courage by remaining in this city without walls, in fear of the people around them, performing a temple service despite the fact that they can't actually do it exactly the way God had prescribed. They feared the people, but they still had the courage to act. God has made it clear that his interest is not in formula. His interest is in heart. Verses 7 through 9. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, and the rest of their brothers, and the priests, and the Levites, and all who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Yeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Kadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, and the sons of Hanadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. Well, now we're starting to see the work begin. It says a few months later, they begin, or they're ready to begin, the temple. And during the period between when they began the worship to the point where they begin the construction, which we're starting to see now, they use that time in between to buy the materials that they need. And in particular, they need wood. And they take the, some of the wealth that's been given to them by Cyrus and some of the other people that they collected, and they use that to finance the purchase of cedar wood from Lebanon. That is the very same place Solomon went for the wood that he used in the first temple. They likely may have purchased some of the other raw materials that they needed, but the rest of the materials would have just come from what they already had, the gold and the silver, etc. The building of the first structure now in the city begins. The first structure in the city begins, and it's in the second month of the second year. The delay in the construction of the temple from when they first arrived until now is extremely significant. This month, the second month of this second year, marks 70 years 
since the people were attacked by Nebuchadnezzar in 605 B.C. Precisely as God has promised, the land rested for 70 years. And once again, we see a group of leaders beginning to organize the work. And once again, similar names, little different order this time. And a few new names thrown in. You have the Levites now told that they are going to be overseeing as well. Still, though, no clear leader organizing or running Israel, even after a year of living as exiles. Verses 10 through 13. Now, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, for he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundations of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout and the sound was heard far away. So after a period of time, we know the foundations have been constructed so that they can then build the rest of the structure atop it. And that becomes an opportunity for celebration. And this moment is important that there be a moment of celebration that we see progress. And so the priests call for the people with trumpets and they begin to celebrate in keeping with David's precedent. You may remember when David returned the Ark of the Covenant into the city of David, he is dancing with great gladness and he is uh, says he dances with all his might. He sung, he played instruments. This was a great time of celebration for David that he could bring the Ark back into the city of David and with him, the whole of Israel rejoiced. Likewise, now the exiles sort of take their lead from what David did years earlier, and they decide that at the beginning of something this important, it's worth celebrating. And so they have their singing and praising and musical instruments as well, giving thanks to the Lord. And the foundation is a milestone of God's faithfulness. It's proof, evidence of what God said would happen, that though the city was reduced to rubble, it would come back and it would do so only 70 years later. I'd imagine if we had been of this time and had been asked to consider the possibility that Israel would reemerge, that their temple would be rebuilt, and this people that are currently captive of the most powerful nation on earth would ever be set free, much less have this opportunity. None of us would have imagined it could happen. Only by faith could you expect it. They held the faith. They've come back now. They've actually made progress in a tangible way, and they're ready to celebrate it. Against all odds, they're staring at a foundation of the temple in Jerusalem. Next to them, though, are old men who had seen Solomon's temple, which was apparently something quite impressive for its day. And they weep loudly at the sight of such a pitiful beginning. They might have had a little happiness at what was happening, but at the same time, with Solomon's temple being a wonder of the ancient world and this thing not at all wondrous in its current form, they were staring at something so far less elaborate that they had this bittersweet moment. And they're crying, weeping at the prospect that Israel now has seen itself come so low. By the way, the second temple that's being built now will one day exceed the glory of the Temple of Solomon. And we know that happens in two ways. First, Herod's construction project, which he began shortly before Jesus's ministry began. And he completed it only a few years before it was torn down in AD 70. That construction project eventually created a temple that is far, far more elaborate than anything Solomon built. But perhaps more importantly, that temple held Jesus Christ in his flesh as he walked into it. And that certainly granted it far greater glory than the first one had. For the first one had the Shekinah glory of God, which is the indirect manifestation of his glory rather than the fullness of it in Christ. The restoration of Israel is underway. They rebelled. They disobeyed. They rejected the Lord. They were instructed. They were warned. And then they were disciplined. Now the Lord is restoring fellowship. And when we have gone through a period of discipline... However, he brings that into our life and the time comes for him to begin to restore us. It is my position and my view personally from my own experience that he always goes about the restoration process beginning in this same exact way. It always starts with worship. Whenever the Lord calls the people to know him and follow him or an individual to return to him, that call begins with a call to worship him truly It's to the issue of. Who is your God and where is your focus in life? Where is your worship in life? 
moved by his faithfulness and by his mercy, we come back to him, we come before him, and we seek nothing more than to please him. We ask for nothing more than his forgiveness. We don't come with a laundry list of things we want like we so often do when things are going smoothly. But when we've gone through a period of discipline and we're coming out the other side, what matters most to us at that point is to be right with God. We come empty-handed, we assemble according to his call, we come with thankful hearts. In a sense, what you see happening with this group of people as they stand there and stare at what was otherwise a pitiful sight, and yet they're moved to great joy, they're moved to great thankfulness, that's the picture of what goes on in us spiritually when we've gone through a period of denial or running from Christ or putting aside his interests for our own, and he's refreshed in us a desire to follow him truly. We come with no demands. And with the expectation only that he would work with us. When John records the scene of Jesus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, there's a point in there after Jesus has begun to really work with her on what it means to worship and know God as opposed to what she's been focused on in the Samaritan rituals. And he says to her in verse 21, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Two things you can't see or touch. Only in your heart. The Lord may call us to build great things in our own life and to do so in his name, just as Israel was called to rebuild this temple. But before you or I can accomplish anything of significance for the Lord, we have to be content merely to enjoy who he is. If that in itself is not satisfying to us, then we're in no position to do more. And so the Lord always begins his restoration with worship. The call has gone out for worshipers in exile, and these are the ones who answered the call, and they have come back, and they are content now in what they have done, in the little that God has brought back for them. Of course, whenever the Lord attracts true worshipers and they materialize, then the enemy, we know, is not going to be far behind. And that's the next thing you see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 2. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's households and said to them, Let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God. And we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Urshahadan, the king of Assyria, who brought us up here. Well, as the news spreads that Israel has returned and that they're rebuilding the temple, we find that it attracts some interested parties. Men, we're told, living in the land have come. These are men who are living most likely north of Jerusalem and had traveled from there up to the Temple Mount to meet with the men who were building. They approach one of them. They approach Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel means born in Babel or Babylon. He begins at this point to take a leading role. And we know he's a younger man relative to some of those others because he was born in the land and not in Israel. Perhaps, therefore, his youth made him sort of a natural leader in a construction project. That would make some sense. We also know he's a descendant of David, and he is in the genealogy to Joseph. So he's clearly got importance from God's point of view as well. These visitors come up to him, and they seek to join, we're told, in the work with Judah of building the temple. And they claim to be worshipers of the same God, even to have been sacrificing to that God all this time. This tells us that these are people who come from the region of Samaria, which is the region north of Jerusalem. We know that they are the remnant of Israel that was taken by the Assyrians. Ezra says here, though, that they are Judah and Benjamin's enemies. He states that in chapter 4, verse 1. Here's why he says that. When the northern kingdom was taken away by the Assyrians, the policy of the Assyrian government, was to repopulate the lands they conquered with their own people so as to make them permanently part of the Assyrian Empire. And so after they conquered the northern tribes of Israel, the northern kingdom, they then proceeded to flood the area with Assyrians. And those Assyrians moved in, and over time, they began to intermarry with a few of the Jews that had escaped the Assyrian army and were still living scattered about in the land. The descendants of these marriages between the Assyrians and the leftover Jews are the people that are later called in the Bible Samaritans. 
At this point in history, they're not yet being called Samaritans, but they are already, we can see by Ezra's comment, they are already considered to be enemies of Judah and Benjamin. And that's first because the northern kingdom was an enemy of the southern kingdom. They fought against one another. So these are the remnants of the northern kingdom in that respect. But secondly, and more importantly, they're enemies because they're no longer Jewish. As a result of intermarrying with the Assyrians, they're no longer considered Jew, not by the Jews themselves in the southern kingdom and not by God himself. Nevertheless, they think they're still Jew, Jew in some distorted sense of the word. And in seeing themselves as Jewish, they see themselves as deserving of being included in this Jewish project and this to be their temple as well. But Zerubbabel replies in verses three through five. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. But we ourselves will together build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So Zerubbabel isn't fooled by their offer. He isn't fooled by their claims of being Jewish. He responds clearly. He says they have nothing in common with God's people in building the temple. He is saying to them, in effect, you're not Jewish. They are Gentile. And as such, they have no relationship to the work of God as God has appointed through his people, Israel. It's very easy to draw an application out of this moment to our own circumstances today, at least in this context of God's people and those who are not God's people. In this case, a group of people who were not God's people wanted to be counted as such by their joining to the work of the temple, to being a part of the temple. And Zerubbabel says plainly, you have nothing in common with us. And that's effectively the same counsel of the New Testament concerning the church today. The temple of God is the gathering of the people wherever we are. And that gathering has nothing in common with darkness. Light has nothing in common with darkness. So there can be no compromise on this point because of the essence of what it means to be a believer. Though we might desire to include others, we prefer for whatever reason. We can't break a rule that is not set by us. You can't combine light and dark. You can't combine the believer and the unbeliever in a single work of the temple of the body of Christ. So they might congregate. And that might be a good thing if it means we can influence them for a time. But we can't ever cross the line of assuming they have become part of us by their congregating with us. In fact, we should be careful about congregating to any great degree if they are not to be one of us. I'm talking specifically about the worship time or about any time in which the group is called itself together to form as a group for the purpose of glorifying God. There is us. There is them. Now, our influence is to create more of them into us, as God permits. But until that happens, we can't ever become so weak in our theology that we overemphasize a love that is not disciplined by the truth of Scripture and becomes counterproductive to the purpose of love. The purpose of love is to win them over for Christ, not to accept them despite Christ. At this point, Zerubbabel refuses to let them in. And, of course, their response to that, the response to them being rejected at this point, is that they will now seek to undermine the very effort itself. When he offends them, They go off to intimidate and frighten the Jews. And as a result, the people, we're told, are discouraged. This makes it utterly clear, by the way, that they did not have honest intentions. No one who shows up with a true and honest desire to build a temple to the living God turns around and undermines those who go forward with the work without you. Right. So it becomes clear they never had a sincere interest in rebuilding the temple. And now they're going to do everything they can do to stop it. And for a time, they succeed through the intimidation. And it says here by Hiring counselors, which is actually a euphemism. It means bribing officials. So they bribe Persian officials in Cyrus's government so that they could then get the work stopped. Because remember, Cyrus had approved it. The only way you're going to get it stopped is if lesser officials override that order or ignore it or in some other way halt it. And that's what happens for 15 years. So for 15 years, all they have is a foundation. During this period, the Jews become complacent. And selfish. They turned their attention to the building of their own homes. They even stole some of the building materials that were sitting on the unfinished construction site and used those materials for their own homes. Haggai the prophet wrote to Israel during this 15 year period. And Haggai is a very short book, it's a couple chapters, and 
you'll see clearly Haggai talking to this group of people during this period of, of waiting for 15 years about what they're doing wrong. And God uses Haggai and the other prophet that spoke during this period is Zechariah. He uses both of these prophets to stir Israel back to the work, to complete what they had started. At one point, Haggai rebukes Israel for taking the fine wood paneling that had been reserved for the temple and putting it in their home. And he says this in Haggai 1, 3 and 4. He says, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? A complete dishonoring of God in that. The intervention of Israel's enemies in this moment should be no surprise to anyone who's familiar with Satan's pattern of deception. And it's a useful thing to remember his pattern and to recognize it here, because, again, at the moment we turn from a period of disobedience in any form and God is restoring us, you can be sure that the enemy won't be far behind looking for a way to shortcut, to undermine the progress that he sees being made in someone's life. And when I say the enemy, of course, I don't mean that literally the person Satan is involved in every one of our lives, but he has plenty of others uh, on his side and he uses that army. In this case, Satan begins to corrupt and he first begins to try in corrupting from within. He sends the Samaritans. He comes as an angel of light. He comes with an offer and had Zerubbabel mistakenly allowed them to join in the work. Eventually, you can imagine that that joining together of these people and the people of Judah would have repeated the mistake that the northern kingdoms made. And he would have begun to corrupt them from within the people of Judah at that point, putting an end to the Jewish race in Jerusalem. By the way, he did exactly, Satan did exactly the same thing or tried to do the same thing with, with Christ. At the outset of Christ's ministry, his first effort in undermining the work of God in Christ was to tempt Christ to trade God's kingdom for something Satan would give him in place of that. So as a believer who may be coming back from a period of disobedience, it's not unlikely that the enemy will come back and tempt you with the very thing that took you off course in the first place to reintroduce you to the temptations that may have been the cause for your downfall, to, to give you yet another bite at the apple in the hope that whatever worked the first time would work again. When that fails, Satan moves to the act of intimidation and fear. And the fear of consequences is always going to be one of those things that Satan will use to stop our progress. If we can't be corrupted, we have to be fearful. Finally, after fear and intimidation, if that doesn't work, then the enemy moves to riches, pleasures, and distractions, leading the people to become self-satisfied, more interested in building their own lives than in building the kingdom of God. One way or the other, he wants to interrupt the work of the Lord in his people. Now, obviously, these are general patterns. I'm not suggesting that they're always going to follow exactly the same, but you should be able to recognize some of these things in your own life if you look closely. As we look at the rest of the chapter, we're going to find an interesting and I think a potentially confusing chronology. If you haven't studied this book before, this will be news to you. For whatever reason, Ezra decides at this point, right here where we are now in chapter four, to record other moments of opposition that happened years after the temple is already finished. What follows in verses six through the rest of the chapter is not what happened at this same moment in time. This is another episode of opposition that the people faced much later after the temple was already built. In fact, it's the opposition that came against Nehemiah when Nehemiah was building the wall. So understanding that will help you understand what's coming next. Look at verse 6. Now, in the reign of Hasusurus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. And in the days of Artaxerxes, Vishim, Mithredath, Tibiel, and the rest of the colleagues wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the text of the letter was written in Aramaic and translated from Aramaic. Rehum, the commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to king Artaxerxes as follows. Then wrote Rehum, the commander, and Shimshay, the scribe, and the rest of the colleagues, the judges and the lesser governors, the officials, the secretaries, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is, the Elamites, and the rest of the nations, which the great and honorable Osnapar, I don't think you can say great and honorable and put that name after it and have it sound right. With the great and honorable Osnapper, deported and settled in the city of Samaria and in the rest of the region beyond the river. Now, this is the copy of the letter which they sent to him. To King Artaxerxes, your servants, the men in the region beyond the river, and now let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding the rebellious and evil city and are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. 
Now let it be known to the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they will not pay tribute, custom or toll, and it will damage the revenue of the kings. And because we are in the service of the palace and it is not fitting for us to see the king's dishonor. Therefore, we have sent and informed the king so that a search may be made in the record books of your fathers. And you will discover in the record books and learn that the city is a rebellious city and damaging to kings and provinces and that they have incited revolt within it in past days. Therefore, that city was laid waste. We inform the king that if that city is rebuilt and the walls finished, as a result, you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. Now, we know this passage is unrelated to the ceasing of the temple construction because of several things. First, the kings that are named here ruled many years after the temple was finished. The first king mentioned, he followed Darius I, who's the king after Cyrus, who allows him to start building again. He was the Persian king that Esther married, and he came to power 30 years after the temple was finished. Nevertheless, the people in the land, as you can tell, are still writing and still complaining about the Jews, even 30 years after the temple was built. I think that's the reason why Ezra inserts it here. It's to make the point that these people were enemies and that this early conflict between him, them and Zerubbabel was justified and that Zerubbabel was justified when he said no to them. And the history proves that that was all consistent with their true nature. I think that's the purpose and why it shows up at this point in the book. Then again, it says in the days of Artaxerxes, he succeeded Xerxes and a group of men from the land in his day wrote to him in Aramaic to complain to him about Israel. I think Ezra emphasizes the fact that the letter was written in Aramaic because he recorded his letter in Aramaic starting at this point and going through chapter six. This point in chapter four, the beginning of chapter four, more or less four, eight through six, 18, to be specific, is written in Aramaic, not Hebrew probably so that he didn't have to keep moving back and forth between Aramaic and Hebrew as he wrote the letter and then wrote a commentary about it. So he probably just made that whole section Aramaic for the ease of it. In fact, in the oldest Hebrew scrolls, this is Aramaic. They actually kept it Aramaic in the Hebrew scrolls. And Aramaic was the common language of Persia, but it was not the language of the kings. The kings spoke Persian. So that's why it says it was translated for the king. The letter itself begins in verse 11. In it, the men make false accusations against the people of Israel. Now, it's false in the sense that they are saying things to slander Israel and stop the building project. But it is not false in that many of the details are accurate. They simply twist them for their own purposes. Keep in mind, by the way, that the group they are describing here when they say the people of Israel are building the wall, they're not talking about Zerubbabel here. Zerubbabel is probably dead by now. This is almost 100 years later. So in a sense, this letter is complaining about Ezra and Nehemiah personally, along with the people in the land with them. The claim they make is that Israel and Judah have three concerns for the king. First, if the city is restored, the people are going to stop paying taxes to Persia, especially if they finish the walls, because then they can defend themselves. And a city with strong walls is hard to defeat. And I suspect they're probably right. I suspect Israel would have tried to stop paying a king taxes because they don't see themselves as subjugated to any king. Secondly, they claim that the people were historically rebellious. If you go back and you look in the records of your fathers and what they're referring to are the records of Babylon and Assyria, which Persia had overtaken and assumed when they took over the land. If they went back and read those stories, they'd find out these people are rebellious. Well, that's true, too. And then finally, in verse 16, the third claim is if the city's allowed to be rebuilt, it's going to encourage others in the land to rebel. And if that happens, then he's going to lose control of that whole region of the world. So it's a domino theory, basically. That if you allow one person to get away with this, you're going to lose the whole land. One bad seed goes unpunished. It gives incentive for everybody else. That's a hard one to predict, but it seems sensible. The point is the letter doesn't say things that are altogether factually wrong, but they're being twisted in an effect to change what God had already prescribed through Cyrus. Now, verses 17 through 23, as we finish the chapter. Then the king sent an answer to Rehum, the commander to Shimshai, the scribe, and to the rest of their colleagues who live in Samaria and in the rest of the provinces beyond the river. Peace. And now the document which you sent to us has been translated and read before me. A decree has been issued by me and a search has been made. And it has been discovered that that city has risen up against the kings in past days. That rebellion and revolt have been perpetrated in it. That mighty kings have ruled over Jerusalem, governing all the provinces beyond the river. And that tribute, custom and toll were paid to them. So 
Now issue a decree to make these men stop work, that this city may not be rebuilt until a decree is issued by me. Beware of being negligent in carrying out this matter. Why should damage increase to the detriment of the kings? Then as soon as the copy of King Artaxerxes' document was read before Rehum and Shimshiah, the scribe and their colleagues, they went in haste to Jerusalem to the Jews and stopped them by force of arms. So the ploy works, at least for a time. The king reads the letter and then he commands a search and he finds out the truth and then he decides, yes, we need to halt the city rebuilding. But you notice it says until he issues a decree. It's a temporary restraining order on the building. And this king, King Artaxerxes, we know is the same king that eventually permits Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. So apparently he has a change of heart and apparently this doesn't stay forever. We're going to study the change of heart that Artaxerxes has later when we get to that part in Nehemiah. Meanwhile, his letter is sent and the people in the land obviously like what they read. They go and they stop the construction. And no matter what their earthly purpose, though, in the opposition, we know that their real power that's driving them is their hatred for the Jews, which is seated in their heart by Satan himself. Remember, once more, this order suspending the work is the order that suspends the work of the walls, not the work of the temple. So we read in verse 24, lastly, then work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Back to the original point he was making, back to the start. We're talking now about the ceasing of the temple. This is where it can get confusing. So chronologically, we've come back now from the future, and we're talking now again about the moment of the temple being rebuilt, and they're stopping because of the fear and the intimidation and so on. Now that has gone on or will go on for 15 years while Haggai and Zechariah nag at them to start up again. It's only going to resume again once a new king is in power, Darius I, And in chapter five, we're going to see the work resume as a continuation of that first step of restoration. We don't get to the second step until we get into chapter seven. Israel must persevere in this first step of restoration before the Lord is going to bring step two of restoration. They have to come with pure hearts to obey and to worship, and they have to be prepared to face the enemy's opposition. But in due time, the Lord is going to bring an end to that opposition. The timing The guides, the starts and the stops of all of this, that's the timing that the Lord himself is orchestrating. And he's doing it according to a timetable that he himself established years earlier through a prophet, Daniel. So we'll come back next week when we look at the next section, looking at how step one continues through a perseverance and then leads into step two of restoration. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminders of worship and of being devoted to you without concern for the trappings of the world and of ritual. We'll never completely escape those things, Father, this side of heaven, but I pray that you'd never let them become more important in our hearts than pleasing you. And they'd never substitute, Father, for our self-sacrifice and for devotion in our lives to you. Thank you, Father, that we had the patience and the endurance tonight to listen and to, to consider these things. And I ask, Father, for more patience and more endurance to carry them out as we go out in our day and come back next week, if you're willing to bring us. We pray for that. In Jesus' name, amen.